So the year was 2012, a full decade ago, when I began serving a small Baptist church in Spring, Texas, called Wildwood Baptist Church. My friend Brendan, who you'll hear sing and play a song uh, right after the service, was one of the students in the youth group. I was the youth minister at this church. And a lot of the youth, uh, a lot of the ministry positions that I've held over the years were um, kind of combo positions is what they're sometimes called, where I would do youth and worship. And a lot of the positions that I've held in different congregations have been what I also call startup kind of positions. And Wildwood was no different. The church um, and the leadership there called me to serve as the youth minister and they had never had a youth minister before. So I was starting from scratch with building a youth group. And they also called me to help serve as a worship leader for a new kind of modern eclectic worship service that would have a lot of different kinds of elements, including weekly communion and reflection stations around the room that we were meeting in. It was really creative and really fun, but we also were starting that from scratch. And when we began this new worship service in particular, there were roughly 10 to 15 people every week that would come and participate in an old upstairs fellowship hall with no sound system and a junky air conditioner that hardly worked. And out of those 10 to 15 participants every week, about half were Brendan Duto and his family. <laughs> and uh, within a year, of starting that service and Brendan's dad, Vince played drums and Brendan was really learning how to play guitar at the time and would join me in helping lead worship. And we would just lead every week with whoever showed up. And within about a year, we were averaging 75 to hundred people in that service. And we had to move to a new space. Now that was exciting. And, there were a lot of good things and great relationships that came in that time that I was at Wildwood, including relationship with Brendan and his family. Wildwood Baptist, like any church, though, was not a perfect congregation. And there were some toxic aspects in terms of that church system. And you may be wondering why I'm mentioning in this church by name. And the church no longer exists. They actually disbanded several years ago. Uh, so I'm not speaking ill of a church that presently meets or anything like that. But it's a good example and a good reminder to us all that that toxic systems can lead to all sorts of negative outcomes, especially when it relates to religion and faith. So a few years after I had served at Wildwood Baptist in a part time capacity, uh, my family and I, Audrey and uh, Eli was our only child at that point, moved back to Virginia where Audrey and I had done seminary. And I became the pastor of a church for the first time. And much of the dysfunction at the church that I had been at in spring came to a head in the days after I left. And it was so bad that, as I mentioned, the church disbanded just a year or two after that. Now, there are a few things that I really do remember about my time at Wildwood. Um, my relationship with Brendan and his family, of course, and several other families that I've kept up with over the years. But I also finally remember the fact that Wildwood Baptist Church was the church that ordained me to ministry and affirmed my own call in ministry in that way. The passage that Christian read a few minutes ago is actually the same passage that I used 
in a brief sermon given on the occasion of my ordination at Wildwood Baptist Church in Spring, Texas. And my how my views of ministry and faith have changed in a decade. I used to think that my calling to be a pastor was somehow different or unique from everyone else's calling who might follow Jesus. In the past, I preached from this passage, focusing on what it states about the calling of ministers. But now I would rather draw attention to the first verse of chapter 4 in Ephesians, which says, I plead with you then in the name of our Redeemer to lead a life worthy of your calling. Right there in this passage where so many roles and offices are apparently defined by the Apostle Paul, Paul actually states plainly that all followers of Jesus are called to the work of ministry in some way. I do believe with all my heart that ordination, which our church regularly does, is a wonderful affirmation of a church's blessing on someone, uh, identifying their gifts and affirming them in ministry. And in our church, we, of course, affirm all who feel called to ministry in that way. And we uh, ordain deacons in our Baptist tradition also. And I believe that ordination is important and it's a marker of a church's affirmation and a, uh, a measure of how a church views a person's gifts in ministry and their vocational calling and that kind of thing. But I also don't think that ordination gives me or anyone else special access to the divine or any favored status in God's economy or any measure of holiness that's not already given to every other follower of God. There was a Christian ethicist named T.B. Maston who is said to have once quipped that the laying on of hands in many Baptist churches is little more than empty hands placed on empty heads, which I think is funny. Now, he didn't mean that ordination is meaningless, but rather that in being ordained, one does not receive any extra measure of God's spirit or any extra insight into studying and reading scripture that's not freely available to everyone already. Much earlier in my own ministry, I thought that part of my call was to instill the correct doctrine into those that I led. I kind of laugh at that now at my younger self. Do you ever laugh at your younger self or roll your eyes at your younger self? One of the things that I've learned or had to start learning in the last several years is to actually be kind to my younger self and not to shame my younger self because my younger self didn't know any better. I recall that at this church, Wildwood Baptist, they had a, an apologetics ministry that would meet once a month. And if you don't know the word apologetics, it's just a big fancy word that literally means defending the faith. And Christian scholars and thinkers from around the Houston area would regularly present about 90-minute lectures to this group on a Friday night because there's nothing more fun to do on a Friday night. And so they would present these lectures that were about an hour and a half, and then they would field questions for 30 minutes after that on some obscure theological topic. And the point was 
supposed to be to better equip and train people to, quote, defend their faith in a secular world. When I began my doctorate, I was invited to present a few lectures over the course of several months. And I remember, this is funny because it is one of the things that I kind of roll my eyes out now. I gave a 90-minute lecture on the great heresies of Christian history. Got to watch out for those modern heretics too, like Rob Bell and Brian McLaren and all the people that I actually love to read now. And ironically, my own faith and my own ministry journey now has me firmly planted in a place that my younger self might have labeled a heretic. And actually, I'm completely free of shame and completely free of the guilt that my younger self might have cast onto my present self. And that's taken some internal work, too. And so nowadays, I feel that my calling is not to impart correct doctrine to people. But actually, I feel like a large part of my own calling is to help folks wrestle with life's toughest questions. And if I had read the passage in Ephesians then the way that I read it now in my early years of ministry, my ministry would have looked very different over the years. Paul even says in verse 10, the one who descended, talking about Christ, is the very one who ascended high above the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. All the times I've read or taught from this passage, I've kind of glossed over that, probably because I wasn't thinking about it or it sounded like universalism. <gasps> But here's the thing, if the resurrected Christ is all-encompassing and does fill the whole universe, then who am I to think that Christ can only be found in a church building or in a narrow reading of Scripture or even in a particular religious expression? Paul is writing here that Christian unity of all things comes from seeing the universal Christ in everything and everyone. And that those of us who are vocational ministers are called to train and equip the rest of the church to love the world in unity because we find the cosmic Christ everywhere we turn. Richard Rohr writes in his book, Universal Christ, that it is impossible to make individuals feel sacred inside a profane, empty, accidental universe. This way of seeking makes us feel separate, competitive, striving to be superior instead of deeply connected, seeking ever larger circles of union. Paul writes later in this same passage, let us then be children no longer tossed here and there, carried about by every wind of doctrine or by human trickery or crafty, deceitful schemes. Rather, let us speak the truth in love and grow into the full maturity of Christ the head. Through Christ, the whole body grows with the proper functioning of each member firmly joined together by each supporting ligament, the body builds itself up in love. 
I used to read that passage, those verses that I just read, verses 14 through 16. I used to read those words as some kind of a mandate to, pres- to resist progressive theology. But as I've thought about it, I actually now believe that fundamentalism is one of those winds of doctrine that Paul might have been talking about. Ask yourself, which version of Christianity, particularly in American and Western Christianity, has the most human trickery or crafty, deceitful schemes? If being a Christian, for instance, means that I have to check my brain at the door, or support Christian nationalism and demagoguery, or to perpetuate grand lies in order to grasp at power. I want no part in it. If being a Christian requires me to tell half the population they have no autonomy as image bearers of God, or cause me to ostracize and shame those with difference, or mandates that I shun and condemn those with sincere questions and even doubts, then that religion is not of Jesus Christ. But here's some good news. That's what the word gospel means after all. Following Jesus requires none of those things. If we are willing to open our hearts and our minds to seeing Christ in everything and everyone, we will have a more expansive view of God's grace, a more expansive view of God's love. Which is not only the foundation for unity and peace in the church, but perhaps the whole world. I began to view ministry differently as I wrestled with the questions that youth and teens would express to me in youth ministry. The kinds of questions that had no easy answers and could not be summarized or explained away in an apologetics lecture. As an exercise one night in youth group, I invited students to pause and reflect on the questions that they might ask God if given a chance. And they anonymously placed their questions in this very envelope. And I have held on to this envelope for years Because the questions that the students anonymously put in this envelope were stunning to me, coming from 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th grade students. Just listen to a few of the questions. And these are questions I've literally carried with me, meaning I've moved around the country with this envelope of questions. And I've carried them literally and figuratively with me for some time. Here are the questions that some of these teenagers were asking if they could ask God a question. Is it discipline when something happens that's sad or does it just happen? Why did my parents get separated and you let me go through that? Why do people die and why do we live? Why am I gay? 
Why does my father have to be such a drug addict and alcoholic and forget about us and not call on birthdays or holidays? What would life be like if I were born into a different family? How many stars are there? Do you hear the pain and the trauma in these questions? Do you also notice at a certain level a sense of wonder and, and a depth to the reflection? Teenagers and kids ask the most incredible questions. And one of my theories for why so many young people leave the church is they're not given space to honestly and authentically ask questions. And when they do, they're often shamed for it. And so I believe in, in questions like this that I've literally carried with me have shaped my approach to ministry. And it's one of the things that's changed the most for me and how I view my call to ministry at this point. I believe that my call to ministry, at least in part, at this point is to walk alongside those with family trauma and religious trauma. And believe me, I've got plenty of my own. And it seems more authentic to admit that I don't have all of the answers. And the Bible might not either. I also feel called at this point in my own life to help train ministers to approach their own vocations in terms of embracing those with doubt and trauma rather than causing further damage. That's why I'm so passionate about the work that I'm doing with this young seminary in San Antonio. I believe wholeheartedly at this point that we should not be creating a faith community out of uniformity of doctrine, but rather around Christocentric love. And that's one of the things that drew our family to this beautiful, wonderful community we call Peace of Christ, is the thing that unifies our church, it seems to me, is really trying to embody the radical, inclusive love of God. Susan Hyland, Associate Professor of New Testament at Emory University in Atlanta, writes in a commentary about this passage that in Ephesians, unity is not the same as uniformity. And that what is made known through the church is the wisdom of God in its rich variety. Unity does not mean uniformity. Unity comes from embracing the one who fills the whole universe. Unity comes in embracing the diversity that God has created and given, not only all of creation, but the church itself. Embracing the one who fills the whole universe. I used to talk about my calling in different ways, but I actually think that's all my calling is at this point. And I actually think that's yours too, to embrace and love the one who fills the whole universe 
and the mystery of it all. This is what I believe Paul means when he writes in verse 16, with the proper functioning of each member firmly joined together by supporting each ligament, the body builds itself up in love. I'm actually not sure if Wildwood Baptist Church existed today that they would ordain the present day Jonathan. This is an ordination certificate that they gave me when I was ordained. And you might see the date there. It says uh, 26th of February, 2012. And if that church, and I, and I hang it on my wall just over there with a bunch of other paper that nobody ever sees or cares about. <laughs> and, and I don't know if that church existed today, if they would ordain me. But I display this and I hang it as a reminder because I'm grateful for the role that that congregation and the people in it actually played in my own faith journey. And so I want to close the message time this morning with a couple of questions and just invite you to reflect before Brendan, my friend from Wildwood Baptist Church, plays a song that God has put on his heart this week. So here's a couple of questions I invite you to reflect. How would seeing Christ in everything and everyone change your perspective? Here's a second question. What prior stops on your journey has God used to form and shape you? And the final question. What role might you play in building up the ministry of our faith community, Peace of Christ, in unity and in love? As your week continues, or even as you gather around a lunch table or a dinner table later today, I invite you to continue reflection on these questions and on the passage today and what it means for all of us to be called to the work of ministry. Amen.